This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Oakshade Podcast, me, Dan, the fitness man. Today, bring it on Josh Boyd. If you haven't heard of him, shame on you. This guy is the real deal. I'm super stoked to have him on. He's out of Northwest Montana. You're going to listen to this podcast that took place in a coffee shop. We met halfway. He drove a couple hours. I drove a couple hours. We did it in person. It was awesome. There's some uh, background noise or whatever, but hey, we're in a coffee shop and I'm not going to have to go through and edit this. That's not my style. There's no fluff here. Y'all know it's all about that do-it-yourself blue-collar brethren podcast is sponsored by Delayed Gratification discipline, hard work, and staying accountable to yourself. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Josh Boyd. I used to read his articles back when there was no social. This guy's been an outdoor writer forever. He's very, very consistent on killing elk and other species as well, like mountain goat, moose, antelope, black bear, and some monster whitetails. But we're going to talk just about elk hunting today. We cover like A through Z on topics. We talk a little bit about the hunting industry as well. It's really interesting to get his take. The dude is a biologist by day. He spends a lot of time in the mountains, so he's kind of a backcountry junkie. I mean, he's really an expert when it comes to backcountry hunting. He's a wealth of knowledge, and like I said, he's super humble. You're not going to really find him with a huge social following, which is unfortunate because he is the real deal. Uh, things going on with Elk Shape. We're pumping out podcasts. We're pumping out YouTube behind the scenes of Elk Shape Camp videos. Check those out. Subscribe. Check us out on social. We try to do a good job there. You can follow along at Elk Shape. And then you can check out the store. We've got new shirts, hats, and swag. And coming soon, I'm going to create some sort of online Elk Shape Camp version. But that's down the road. And everyone's wanting to know, hey, Dan, when's the next Elk Shape Camp? I'm telling you, it's coming soon. It's probably going to be in June. It's probably going to be open to 40 athletes. We're probably going to bring Train to Hunt in as well to have a private Train to Hunt course and instruction with the founder of Train to Hunt. We're going to do more archery. We're going to do more tuning, more video analysis of your shot execution, going over your elk setup in detail with the one of the best archery guys I know, Josh Jones, Spokane Valley Archery. I think we're going to bring back Dirk the Bugler, 
and do some serious elk calling. We're going to break guys into even smaller groups so they can get more coaching and instruction from Dirk. And of course, I'm going to come in there and smoke you through a couple of workouts, teach you how to eat right, do some biometric scans through an in-body teach you how to move, prevent injury, and then we'll go over more Q&A on how to get it done on public land elk. Can't wait. I'll pump out registration and all that kind of stuff and announce it through the social networks. That's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, I have an emailing list. If you want to get on that list, go to elkshape.com and enter your information accurately, and you'll be the first to know. Without further ado, this is Josh Boyd out of Northwest Montana, and he's sitting down with me, and we're talking elk hunting. We are recording. We're doing Elk Shape podcast here in Sandpoint, Idaho, uh, from a guy who drove a couple hours to meet me. Appreciate your time, Josh Boyd. It's a little, it's a little over an hour. Was it? it yeah, it's not bad. We are at a coffee shop. Not going to say the name. I kind of got a hipster vibe when we walked in. <laughs> I just confirmed that. I went to the bathroom and saw a bunch of climate change posters all over the wall. So I think we're... They're there. Yep, I, I saw that. I think we're here, and I'm glad I didn't wear my Trump hat, make America great again. <laughs> I actually don't own a hat like that. That's a joke. Um, but man, I'm so pumped to have you on. Yeah, right on. I met you kind of for like officially just a couple weeks ago, but I've known and read all your stuff back when there wasn't social and you like looked forward to reading all the stuff that you put out and, and a couple other guys um so you're just kind of an old school gangster to me like really knowledgeable but real deal you're the perfect candidate for this podcast and we're gonna talk about elk hunting awesome yeah you probably read some stuff with uh in, out of eastman's and i had some stuff in bow hunter a lot of bone bone arrow oh yeah when joe bell was editor yep I wrote some stuff for those guys. I would love to get Joe Bell on here and talk technical archery. Oh, man. The guy is, he's, yeah, a wealth of information. Yeah. He, he might be, he's got a book out on it. Um, you ever read his book? I've flipped through it, but yeah. I haven't read it. But, yeah. yeah, it looks really good. But that's back in the day. Like, I don't know if guys even read magazines anymore. I think people do a little bit, but it's definitely not, like, it doesn't have the reach that, like, the digital media has now you know like yeah. well now i'm writing a lot for rockslide.com oh, cool. so um it gets out there in the world in a lot more people's like eyeballs than any other media it seems like to me what's crazy is the i know some the owners of rockslide well um the avery's yep we do they live in Coeur d'Alene or something yeah yeah I, they live in yeah i th- think it's Coraline. it might be post falls but you know how those are blended together yeah we our paths don't cross much and we hunt a lot of the same ground and yeah. uh, that dude ryan he's a real deal <laughs> yeah he's awesome he's a real deal yeah. so yeah they're great folks i love them um and then the other co-owner is robbie danning yeah out of idaho falls and he's kind of a mule deer legend, living legend. Yeah, he loves that term, the legend. But yeah, no, he's an incredible mule deer hunter. He's dedicated his time and effort to hunting strictly mule deer. He's kind of dropped hunting everything else and just solely focused on mule deer, which, you know, it requires some serious dedication if you're going to kill big bucks consistently. Which he's doing, but you know, we're not going to talk about mule deer, man. Sounds good, man. We're going to talk about elk shape. I love elk hunting. Cool. That's my passion. So, when did you start elk hunting? Um, well, in spirit, when I was about four years old, I couldn't wait to go elk hunting. Um, I'd go with my parents or my dad. He would take me out when I was a little kid, um, growing up. And we, we grew, like, my first memories 
growing up, we lived in central Idaho down in that um, Red River Elk City country. My dad worked for the Forest Service down there. It's kind of started his career down there, and so he would take me out hunting every once in a while and um, just to kind of get me hooked. And That was probably heyday elk, right? Oh, yeah, it was in the 70s. Oh, Yeah, my. late 70s. They had a, a early rifle season where the bulls were bugling, and uh, I remember him coming back with his, his hunting buddies with, you know, bull elk in the back of the truck, and they were bugling with, like, garden hoses and the little copper tubes and all that stuff. Mm. And so cool. uh, I started hunting my for myself um, when I, in Montana. We moved to Montana when I was like seven or something. And um, uh, in Montana, you can back then it was uh, twelve years old was the the legal age you could start hunting, and you could start hunting on your own. I think when you're fourteen, you know, not accompanied by an adult. So I went out when I was twelve, first year I could hunt, and um, drew a big fat blank. But I was definitely hooked. Were you out with a rifle? Yeah. Okay. I was rifle hunting. But I wanted to bow hunt really bad. My dad didn't bow hunt. He just rifle hunted. My uncle bow hunted a little bit. But he lived kind of down that southwest corner. So we'd make an annual trip down there. Right. He'd take me out of school for a week or a week and a half. And we'd go down and hunt around this ranch that he managed kind of down in that southwest Dillon area in it was fun to see a lot of elk, but it was it was November, you know, and it was it was interesting to me. But I always wanted to bow hunt. So the neighbor the neighbors down the street bow hunted, and they kind of took me under their wing oh, yeah. and took me down to the their target they had in the backyard and helped me tune my bow and kind of helped me select broadheads. And I'd go travel over to the flathead and go to that shop, and that that guy would be like, "You don't your parents don't bow hunt," but he I mean he took good care of me. So back then there was this really tight kind of camaraderie amongst bow hunters, and they yep. wanted to bring people into the ranks, and um, it was pretty apparent. You know, I, and so I, I hunted, archery hunted, probably when I was 13, 14, I started going out with the neighbors. And uh, Yeah, and then did you, as far as getting a bow, I mean, how do you know which bow to get? Like, you're a kid, you don't have a job, like, you bay, like, how did you get your first bow, and what was it like? The first bow I got, I traded a a kid down the street for one he had one in his in his bedroom that he didn't use and uh, i had a fly rod and he wanted a fly rod and And he had a bow and i wanted a bow so we just we swapped yeah but it was like it was like a 50 pound compound and i was like 11 oh geez so i couldn't pull it so my mom was like let's we need to get you something that'll work if you're that interested in it so we went to a pro shop um big sky archery Dan Moore. Oh, he's a legend. Oh, yeah. Is he still alive? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's still alive. He's still kicking over in the Flathead area, still killing elk. And I remember back when, I'm sure it's still going on, but uh, bowsite.com. Yeah. So that was the first forum that I got on, and I remember anything he posted, I read as gospel when it came to elk hunting. Because I don't think everyone would say that he, no one's killed as many elk as him. No, yeah, no, I think that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah, guys. Yeah, and he was he was slaying elk back then, and the you know that was like that was probably in the mid '80s, mid to early '80s when that was going on, and it was like it was a feat if a archery hunter killed a bull. I mean, you heard about it. Like word got around town, like oh, so and so they killed another elk with their bow. Wow, they are like a legend. So it was like um, for me, those the guys that were consistently doing it. Yeah, you kind of looked up at them. 
um, you know, they kind of put him on this little pedestal and like, holy cow, this is amazing. And that was like when any elk was kind of a big deal. Yeah. And if they were killing two or three, you know, it was amazing. It was pretty amazing. So, and Dan was killing sometimes two a year. Right. So he would shoot one in Montana, hop over the border, shoot one in Idaho, and they, he was killing nice bulls too, like yeah. open young class bulls. And I remember he would always post like, "Hey, I only kill elk. I only kill bulls, and I only kill bulls with a bugle." <laughs> and I just remember that's burned in my mind. I guarantee if you could look that up somewhere on both sides, he wrote that, and I just remember that since oh, yeah. this day. Yeah, I think and there's I like, videos wow. of him like throwing cow calls off into the brush. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Give me like telling his partner, "Give me that coochie," and tossing it. In that's the brush. cool. But yeah, so he, uh, I'd go to his shop all the time. Oh, man. So um, where he, were you living at the time? I was living in northwest Montana, just over in that Libby country. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of where I grew up, and that's where I live now cool. is up in that northwest corner. Um, it's still pretty remote. Not yeah. a lot of people, you know, live there. Quite a few people travel through, but they don't really stop and hang out. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I grew up. I grew up bow hunting, wanting to bow hunt, and... Um, I think I was successful on my first archery bull when I was 17. Wow. Me and, me and a friend uh, went down to some gnarly country. He he wanted to learn to bow hunt. He knew I'd been bow hunting for a few years with my neighbor friends. And uh, I was ready to kind of break off and do my own thing. And he's like, I got a great spot where I rifle hunt with my dad. And there's bull rubs everywhere. What do you think? Should we go there and bow hunt? And I'm like, yeah, let's go. Yes, we if should. you take me to your spot, I'll teach you what I know, my yep. limited knowledge. And we went down there. We planned it out. We had a big camp packed into like up onto this big road and set it up on the end of this gated road and stayed there for a while and called a bull in to uh, his opening day. Called it into twelve yards and just double lunged him. Oh my god! Yeah, it was, and it was at seventeen. Yeah, and it was his first bow hunt, like actual real right. elk bow hunt. And uh, this bull just came in and tore up a bunch of alder, like 15 yards in front of him. And then it turned and came in front of me. Yeah, it was epic. And then you guys got to pack it and out, pack break it, it down first and foremost. Break it down. I killed a bunch. I'd killed a few elk with a, with my rifle, so oh. I kind of knew the process. Yeah. Um, but I hadn't really packed a lot because since I was hunting southwest Montana, close to some ranch stuff, a lot of it was pretty easy getting it out. Yeah. But I'd been around breaking them down enough that i knew but packing them was a whole different ordeal we ended up we had to carry we had packed it up out of a hole so the road was on the top some man things at age 17 i yeah when you think back upon it it's like it was kind of yeah huh yeah it was it was an ordeal that's really cool (laughs) so did you that just kind of set everything on fire oh yeah yeah so from there on it was like that's like that's what i want to do and I knew, I mean, that's kind of been my passion since I was a kid, though. Since I started seeing a couple guys bringing bulls in in the back of their pickups, you know, in the town and showing them off that they killed this with their bow, it's like, that's what I want to do. And I've read Dwight Shoes articles in Outdoor Life when I was a kid on some backpack hunt in Colorado he did. Um, so, yeah, it just kind of lit the fire, and it's like, that's what I want to do at some point the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of tried to build my life kind of around that, having access to elk and the mountains and a lot of public land and just trying to have enough, like, spare time to where I can get away and go hunt. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a lot of sacrifice to do that. 
yeah. you know? It, yeah, well. You just kind of have to line things out and yeah, yeah, yeah. shut some things down. Yeah. What's that been like for you? I mean. It's been, you know, relatively easy for me. Like the, the job that I'm in, I, so I work for the Forest Service as well, but I'm in, uh, I'm in the field of hydrology. So there's a lot of like field data collection that I'm doing, like starting like spring runoff. And then we have a lot of projects throughout the summer. And then a lot of it kind of gets wrapped up. A lot of the field season gets wrapped up around the end of August, early September. There's still some field work that needs to be done, but, you know, it's like I've, I've done most of the stuff that I need to get done. Now it's time I'm going to take some vacation. Um, so I've been able to burn a bunch of my vacation in September and some in October, and I'll, then I'll take some longer weekends, too, to hunt stuff in November. But yeah. for me, it's not been bad. Um, I think my wife would like it if I used a little more vacation for, like, family vacations. Oh, yeah. We should probably get into that down the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a balancing act. It really is. Um, yeah. Yeah. Married with uh, one girl. She's five. And so that's changed a lot. Like, just being away from, you know, being away from my wife was not a big deal because she'd go do her own thing and I'd go do my thing. And, you know, it was, it was not too big of a deal. And sometimes she'd go with on hunting trips. Yeah. Um, but now with the kid, we definitely, I, I definitely, like, long for being at home more than I used to for sure. I, I, I definitely miss, like, the family when I'm gone. Yeah. It's like. That did not exist for me five years ago as well. Where I, my wife and I were in the same scenario. I just did me. She would do her. I think sometimes she'd even look forward to hunting season. She could get a bunch of her stuff done and go catch up with a lot of her friends. And we just pick up right where we left <laughs> off. And yeah. it's not only harder for me, but it's also harder on her now when you're gone. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, everything falls on her shoulders to get done. Take care of the kids. Get dinner ready. Clean the house. Do the dishes. You know, any financial bills that need to be paid if you're gone for three weeks, you know? Yep. So it's, yeah, it's definitely, I have a very tolerant, tolerant wife. Yeah, and so you guys talk about spring and summer plans and try to get intentional. Well, we've been kind of doing that with a calendar mm-hmm. out of necessity. Yeah. Because uh, I'm a workaholic. I just keep my head down. Yeah. And uh, I will shut down everything to go hunting. But I need to get better at shutting everything down to go family stuff. So that's right. kind of what, it's kind of been my maturation. Right. Uh, do you guys do something similar? Yeah. Or? You know, I try to, you know, we'll try to get stuff that we can go do as a couple or as a family yeah. early on. Um, but for the most part, I just, I try to make sure that I'm available every time else outside of hunting season, mainly elk season. Um, I still do spring bear hunting a little bit. I used to do a lot, way more in the spring, you know, in yeah. that, that spring period. I love getting out. But as you know, up here in the north northern latitudes, the prime time is like the you know right at the end of daylight, the last hour yep. of, of daylight. And that up here, well, at least in Montana, with the time change, that's like 9.30, 10 o'clock. And if you're an hour in from your truck, you're not getting back to your truck till you know, 1030 or 11, and then it's an hour home. I mean, you're getting home and trying to shove some dinner in at, like, 1130 or midnight. Yep. Um, that just, that's a lot harder with, with the family. It is challenging. Sure. I can th- remember last year getting pulled over. <laughs> 
by a cop in Idaho because I went hunting just for the day. And like you just said, I mean, I think we shut her down about 9.30, Hour to get back to my dirt bike. Hour to get back to my truck. <laughs> hour drive. So this cop pulls me over at 1 in the morning on a weeknight. And I had to work the next day. But uh, Right. And I think he pulled me over because he probably thought, like, he, you know, what is you doing out here? Yeah. And, um, Leaving the bar. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was in decked out camo. My gear spread out like a bomb in my truck. And uh, he was really cool, but I just remember what exactly what you said, getting home, shoveling dinner down the hatch at 2 in the morning. And, man, hunters are crazy. We are just, <laughs> we're so passionate. Like, that's not even weird to us. But from the outside looking in, that's what it requires. We're going to get into spring bear hunting, too. I got some questions from a couple of listeners. We're going to go over, tap your knowledge. Um, I want to kind of, we kind of talk about family and balancing. And we get, that's kind of important to me. I like to get that out of the way. Like, that's, yeah. that's as a man... Like you need to put your family first. Um, yeah. So like, like I was my, I guess my point was like, I've, I've definitely have stopped hunting in the spring quite as much as I used to. And I, you know, I don't shed hunt as much as I used to either. Um, so there's just some things I just have put on the back burner to spend time with my family. And I mean, and I'm not giving up anything if, I mean, it's super rewarding and I love it and it's, it's great. It's just different. Yeah. You know? I relate. So, yeah, I totally yeah. relate. It's but, you know, I also try to, you know, come September, I'll, I definitely, I am gone to do what I want to go do. Yeah. So that's sort of that balance that's, it's hard and it's different for everybody. Everybody has, kind of has to create that own, you know, environment for themselves. And every spouse is different. 100%. They have different tolerances. There's no rule book or like. No. Protocol. But uh, it definitely requires communication. I think that is the common denominator. Yeah. No surprises. <laughs> uh, tell them what you're thinking ahead of time. And yes. even if it's what you're thinking about all the time, at least tell them. Uh, that's probably something that I've learned to do more and more is just, hey, this is what I'm thinking. This is what that entails. She may roll her eyes, but at least I told her. Right. You know, I Yes. I've been really bad about that. And I've gotten better in the in, you know over the past few years. Like you, I'm always scheming and making plans in my head. We're schemers, man. Yeah, but she can't read my mind. Uh-uh. And then I'll break it. Oh, yeah, I think I'm going to go you know, hunt southern Idaho in October. Like, what? What? Oh, really? Like, yeah, you didn't know about this? I haven't <laughs> known about it for six months. I've been plotting <laughs> this for six months. That's awesome to hear. Man, I'm not alone. How old are you? I am 46. You are not? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay, so you guys aren't with us right now. We're not doing a video podcast. <laughs> Josh looks like he's about my age. I'm 37. <laughs> no wonder I was like, yeah, I was kind of just getting into elk hunting about 2000, 2001, and I was reading your stuff, you know, like in that early. Okay, Like yeah. you were writing in around that time frame. And even in like when I started kind of figuring out elk hunting, I'd still see your stuff in around 2005. So you've been around the yeah. industry. Let's get into the industry a little bit yeah. from your lens and try to keep it positive. But how has it been seeing it kind of change as far as, t- well, there wasn't really much hunting TV. There was magazines, then there was a lot of hunting TV, and then it seems like it's shifting. Now there's a lot of digital media. You being a writer, you being the real deal elk hunter, in my opinion, um, and that next generation coming up. What's been? What's in your field notes? What's in your observations? Um, you know, I didn't. I wasn't a big consumer of outdoor television. I just don't watch a lot of TV. Period. Um, even on 
you know, the interweb. I just don't. I'll look at some. St- I'll watch some stuff on YouTube every once in a while. Actually, I can dive into a rabbit hole, and that's the reason I don't do it because it can suck you in. But there's some good there's some good content on the internet. But so I I don't really I can't really speak to the hunting TV. I just yep. um, I have seen some of it, but you know I used to watch videos that you'd like the Primos videos, the yeah. truth videos, and I knew the truth where those were filmed. And I mean I I kind of felt like they were duping the general consumer of it because they didn't know that those were on. These you know fifteen thousand twenty thousand dollar per hunt private ranches all over the west, um, but it was amazing footage, For incredible. Sure. I mean, it got what they wanted, and it, it was you know they sold a ton of it, and it sold their calls. Um, so I'd watch that stuff just for the pure entertainment of seeing elk being called in. But, um, I knew that that's not reality for 98% of the public that's, you know, out there trying to kill an elk with their bow, especially on public land. Just doesn't work that way. There's, there might be one or two days out of a season where you could experience something like that, but it's rare. Which we live for. Right. So, um, but as far as like writing goes, you know, it, I, I started writing because I wanted to um, share stories of adventure. Yes. I, you know, I, I didn't really like the formulaic um, kind of style of, like, I drew a tag. I went out and scouted. My buddies came with. We named these three critters, and then I killed, you know, Droopy or whatever they happened to name their animal. It just, it, that there's no adventure in that, and I just wanted to um, write something a little different, so... I, you know, I did write some stuff for some of those types of magazines that have those stories, but um, I think my first article for Bowhunter was about just this grueling, grinding, gnarly, backcountry, just an exhausting elk hunt in Idaho where I killed this bull at, uh, is that that bull? Yeah, I shot a bull at like, I don't know, 10 feet in the thick brush in North Idaho. And uh, I started out grinding up this old gated road by my headlamp, and then I hiked over the top of a mountain into a drainage and then up the other side of a mountain and around the side, and I called this bull in solo, killed him. And it was just this long, epic. It was more of, I mean, it it was just, I just wanted to tell the story from my perspective. It's like, this just wasn't easy. You can can show trophy photos anybody you want, but you just, they don't know what went into that. The blisters and the sweat and all the you know the miles with the headlamp. Panicked a little bit. Like I've done exactly what you've said. In fact, I hunt predominantly solo for elk, and it's pretty cool. Like you're pumped, you finally got it done. But it, this always happens to me. I'm always like, "What have I just done?" Oh yeah. And the meat's a huge deal. Like it's mm-hmm. probably ninety nine percent of the reason why I'm out there is because that freezer and. Uh, no, no bullshit. Like it's usually like some panic sets in. Okay, like where was the nearest creek? How am I gonna get this hanging? What's the high today? What's the weather doing? Like, do I know anybody that I can? Because getting some buddies is great, but it's usually not right ideal when you just call them and they've got to drop everything. It's not the nicest thing to do. Exactly. Yeah. Um, do you know what I mean by that? Yep. Oh, oh, God. that particular bull. Yeah. It was August thirtieth. Oh no. So it was when opening day. Opening probably. day back then and. A cold front had blown in, so it kind of cooled things off a fair bit. So that helped a lot. But, I mean, when that bull came up 
and he was walking by me, I was like, man, should I shoot this thing? I am in here. Can you believe that? And yeah. I did it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and everything was fine. I didn't lose any meat. But it, it, was, it was a bugger. I mean, he rolled down this old burn into this big pile of blowdown, like, subalpine fur with all these limbs. And I had to, like, bone him out from, like, the top side down. I just I couldn't budge him out of there. And then when you got the first side off, how did you flip him? Um, I just tried to drag him uphill and did roll him. Did you have to take him. the guts out? I didn't. Let's, I'm trying to remember that bull. I No, I couldn't gut him at all. Oh, my he gosh. He was just pinned underneath there. See, because when I hunt solo, I almost have to gut him after I take the first half off. Cause, and I'm not wimpy. I just, no. they're such a big animal to flip them over solo. Yeah. And they always, those bulls always <laughs> die in the worst places. They do. Payback. So, so anyway, that was kind of how I started writing and what I wanted to write. And it sort of, I just started writing some more, like, more uh, technique articles for bow and arrow. And um, it just, so, and then print media started to kind of die off. And I started, actually, I I started writing for um, Corey Jacobson's magazine that he had. Oh, yeah. Back. So did I. Or I went with the other one. There was two elk magazines. There was Elk Hunter. Yep. And then um, Extreme Elk. Did you feel like, finally... A magazine dedicated to elk hunting. Yeah, I'm in. That's what that was my when, yeah. when they guys and then two out. of them came out. I know in the, within like the same month. It was like I'm in. Yeah. So Corey and Dirk, I've kn- I'd known Corey for a while, um, but he he reached out and said, "Yeah, we're really looking for somebody to write like a quarter." It was a quarterly magazine. He's like, "We really want someone to write like a backpacking backcountry themed." column could you do it and i was like yeah i could do that no problem so the art or the the name of the column was like beyond the backcountry he's like you can write what about about whatever you want just go for it and just make it backcountry themed so i wrote about finding water in the backcountry how to load your pack um just some stupid mistakes you do um and it was fun it was a good it was a good uh i guess release of my creative energy to to put those together and i kind of for it for uh forced me to like start taking more and better photographs and planning things out ahead it's like yeah i'm gonna do an article about this i need to take photos about that when i'm out in the field i was gonna ask you about photography so, so when did that start to elevate with all your writing um you know that was always a big seller with any of the any of the articles i wrote so like if you had good images to accompany your your manuscript that he, i mean it was almost a done deal like if you had quality images to to go with a halfway decent article, it, they, the editors would accept it, no problem. So I didn't, I, I just kind of amped it up a little bit when I started doing stuff with Corey. And I think that's when social media started kind of bumping things up. Instagram was kind of coming online and imagery was sort of starting to become a thing. And then it just kind of blew up and print media crashed and the way of the future was online. And that's what I ran into. I happened to run into, um, well, uh, Ryan Avery called me out of the blue one day. He just, he had to find my number because I wasn't on social media at all. He ended up calling uh, Kurt Roscoe from Stone Glacier because Kurt and I had been in contact with some, over some different stuff. And he had my contact info. Got my number from Kurt and then uh, tracked me down and said, hey, we want you to write for us. I'm like, I don't know. I'm pretty busy right now. I don't know if I have time. I'm writing some stuff for Corey. And he's like, well, just think about it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, a month later, Corey's like, yeah, we're kind of going to fold 
extreme elk into elk hunter. So probably not going to be writing anything else. I'm like, oh, that's all right, whatever. And then I ran into Robbie Denning at a Mystery Ranch event in Bozeman. And he's like, hey, you want to write some stuff for us? I'm like, you know what? I just talked to Ryan earlier this spring, and he kind of wanted me to. So I was like, yeah, let's do something. And one article turned into two. And, you know, <laughs> I think last year I think I wrote like four or five, maybe five for Rockslide. Just, and they're more gear review, gear, gear so review what? driven it's articles. Great. They're great. Yeah. They're fun to do. People need that. I, I still look to, you know, get other people's opinion, and take, especially people like you that have seasoned and kind of evolved with the equipment. Yeah. I'd really like to hear your take. So so now you're kind of looking broad of broad broad view of kind of how the industry's changed a little bit. Where do you see it going with um, hunting as a way of life? Hunting and conservation, you have a lot of this clean air, public access, clean water talk. You, the, mm-hmm. I'm seeing some politics come into play. Oh, yeah. It's, What's your take, you know, being on this earth for 46 years, you said? Like, <laughs> yeah. wh- where's this thing going? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, I think overall it's been going in a, a good positive direction. Um, there's a lot of exposure to hunting in a very positive light, it seems like. Um, social media brings out, you know, a lot of good people. And... It, I don't know, it exposes hunting for what it can be. Mm-hmm. But it also, there's some dirt that gets drug up and some trash that gets talked. And, um, I, you know, I try to ignore a lot of that stuff. I, I, it's not even worth my attention, really. Um, with the limited amount of time that I have, I try not to dive into that stuff very deep. But it seems like, um, you know, politically-wise, it seems like there's, a, there's definitely a, like a subgroup movement amongst hunters new hunters you know it's it's kind of trendy amongst um you know sort of the the younger generation as far as a way to acquire food and everything's real food based um which i can appreciate that I can get behind that for sure i mean and that's one of the main reasons i love to hunt i like having a freezer full of elk meat i know where it came from it's pure it's clean it's not full of hormones it's not genetically modified Mm-mm. I mean, it's incredible. There's I love usually it. no elk meat recalls. I just saw, <laughs> I just read on this morning. There's this huge beef meat recall. This lady posted it on Facebook, and I was just like, never had an elk meat recall. You know what I mean? Nope. Yeah, I've had some mule deer that I'd like to recall. <laughs> <laughs> some ruddy mule deer. Well, yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, um, so I think that's a good thing. Um, and as far as politics, it seems like the politicians aren't. That, you know, the, you know, there's all that public land transfer talk. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. There's some other political, um, I guess, stances that people have taken. Have tried to, you know, pull the wool over a few sportsmen's eyes. It doesn't. It, it doesn't seem to happen as readily now because information is just free flowing. Yeah. It is. Everybody's kind of tuned in. Everybody has a voice. Everybody kind of can get behind some of these movements to, to kind of put the kibosh on some of that stuff. Yep. And, um, yeah, the whole public land transfer thing was just a, just a mess. Uh, I don't know. I, I know the, the brutes of it, but it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's very political. Yeah. And it's yeah. very one-sided. I understand where they're coming from, but it's really coming at it from a bad, bad place, really. Yeah. You know, I don't do much with politics. I just, like I said, I probably... I just, it doesn't excite me, so I don't put much energy, time into it. 
What does excite me is taking my son elk hunting on public land. And so I can get behind any concept where, you know, I'm not a huge big government guy, but I don't mind the public lands being in federal hands, which is our hands. And I don't like the idea of the states because when they get in a jam, you know, they'll sell that right off. And yeah, absolutely. access goes down. So ultimately, I just want access, public lands. And I do, as far as um, the hunting industry stuff goes, I just want people to be more transparent. <clears throat> I don't think there needs to be a division between, say, guys like you and me, that public land, elk hunt, do-it-yourself, over-the-counter rhetoric versus the guys that hunt ranches like the Primos guys did on their videos. Right. I just think you need to be honest and share where you did it. If you had a guide, who was your guide? And that's great. Right. I just, I just, uh, I think there's a lot of people that don't know better still. Right. Like you said, even back in the Primos DVD days, there was a lot of us, myself included, early on, that thought that's how elk hunting was supposed to be. And that's not what has been my experience or yours. Right. And I think some people do that nowadays with their uh, social. They might paint this picture that, you know, huge bulls but they don't say give you in the backstory right. and when you start to do your homework and understand how much it costs to hunt this ranch in utah or colorado it might be out of your means you right. know what i mean no, so absolutely and yeah. I, ha- I like the idea of celebrating any elk on public land oh yeah especially with a bow well any weapon but yep just and then the gratification that comes into it um Let's move on past that. Let's get into elk hunting tactics. You know, people yes. want to know how to get an elk killed. And I'm coming off of a weekend with 20 newbie elk hunters. I, I Speaking of social, I watched a little of that on, okay. on social and on Dirks. Yeah. Yeah, that, that looked incredible. Yeah. Unbelievable. Congratulations, by the way. Oh, man. Yeah. Very life-changing for, for me. They, they all said it was life-changing, but for me, very humbling. The reason why I bring it up is because I've just got all their questions fresh in my mind. And we had everybody from guys who just bought a bow two months ago to a guy who rifle hunted elk only and was basically wanting to switch so he didn't even have a bow to guys who've been bow hunting and rifle hunting elk for years and hadn't killed one. I think maybe one or two guys actually killed an elk out of 20. So we fed them as much information as we could. But honestly, Josh, like, oh, yeah. It takes a lifetime. Like, I think I did a good job, but I'm just going to reiterate, there's no real shortcuts. I mean, there's podcasts, there's YouTubes, there's resources, there's forums. But at the end of the day, you just got to get out there and go make the mistakes. Yep. So let's get into the mistakes that you made early on. Mm. And I want you to compare and contrast. This is going to be a hard question, but I want you to compare and contrast them to the mistakes that you still may happen to you to this day. Because I still find a way to screw things up but yeah. but what are the, the most obvious ones you were making early on versus you know the ones that might sneak up on you now as a seasoned elk hunter yeah i guess you know when i was starting out i just it was kind of a patience thing it was like a kind of a i, I didn't give uh some of my calling setups enough time or i just you know i just wouldn't i just wouldn't hang out and i wouldn't glass or i wouldn't sit there and listen or I, you know, a bull was probably committed to me and was coming in silent, and I didn't realize it because I was just like, "Well, I don't hear anything. He's not bugling anymore," and just take off. And I still do that sometimes, but not sure. as frequently. Yep. But that was one of the biggest mistakes I made, just starting off. That's so critical. I hope people heard that. Um, just giving it time to marinate and knowing when to pull the plug. I mean, it's still kind of an art. 
It is, and it, you're not going to figure it out until you have a bunch of experience under your belt. And even after you have a bunch of experience, you're still going to screw it up. I mean, it's just going to happen. Yeah. No one's going to have every setup dialed perfectly. Yep. And, I mean, you're dealing with elk. They don't know what they're doing half the time, I swear. I Pretty mean, random. Yeah, they are. They're a crazy creature. It's almost hour to hour. <laughs> yeah. You could say day to day, but I could almost argue hour to hour, you know, mm-hmm. with what they're feeling. Yeah. Um, so wow, that's yeah, cool. Yeah. But, like, when I was beginning, I I just lacked woodsmanship, too. I, I mean, I'd spent, I grew up, you know, in a small community in the mountains, and I hiked and, you know, backpacked and hunted a lot with my relatives and my, my dad. And I, there was still a lot of stuff that I just didn't know. And I just, you know, what? You, you don't you don't get experience until you live it. I mean, you you can't you can't buy experience, and you can't buy knowledge. You can buy a little bit of it, but you just that whole living it is a whole different level. So, like, what exactly does a hoof sound like when it knocks on a downfall log? You don't really know that until you see it or hear it in person, and then you hear it a few times. Like, oh, that's a bull coming, silent. Like he just zipped his lips and he's coming right at us in a rage looking yeah. for me and so you just it just takes a while to figure out what those nuances are of elk behavior and um, that makes sense and i guess um with that you just you just got to have time you got to spend time out in the field to to live it and one of the biggest things is spending a lot of time doing it so my, you know, my my advice to people who are starting out is, like, take as much time as you can in one big chunk and go elk hunting. If you can if you can take 10 days and go all at once, you have a big upper hand than if you're just hunting weekend to weekend to weekend. Yeah, you get almost in a flow. You get into a zone. And, man, that little break, it can be healthy, but I just don't see that speeding up your learning curve. You know, some of the questions we were getting about reading sign, I felt like I couldn't really answer in person. It'd be like, okay, I, I, we'd have to be in the woods, and I'd have to show you that this track is fresh. Right. But since you're a writer, maybe you can articulate with words. <laughs> um, what is some um, ways that you read sign and to know that it's fresh or that it's good or that maybe maybe even knock up? type of sign or i want to do a set here like what are you what are you looking for now obviously terrain features you and i are kind of like that northwest montana north idaho we love our brush country yes but we've also hunted everywhere right so we'll kind of go general sign hey guys hate to be that guy but i gotta interrupt josh boyd before he breaks down elk sign first we just gotta get a little Corey Jacobson time, Elk 101, University of Elk Hunting. Here's a little plug and a discount code for you listeners. Check it out. Hey, Elk Hunters, Corey Jacobson here from Elk101.com. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking about elk hunting every day of the year and working continually to maximize your chances for success this fall. Well, Dan and I have created a special opportunity for you that I feel will absolutely take you to the next level in elk hunting, regardless of your previous experience. Three years ago, I created the University of Elk Hunting online course with one goal in mind, to make you a more successful elk hunter. The UEH online course contains 45 chapters of detailed elk hunting information organized into 17 modules and covering every imaginable elk hunting topic 
from planning and scouting to calling tactics and tracking and every topic in between, the University of Elk Hunting online course is the most comprehensive and complete resource available to elk hunters. And for listeners of the Elk Shape podcast, Dan and I have teamed up to offer you a 20% discount when you sign up. Simply go to elk101.com, click the link to the online course, and use the code ELKSHAPE, all one word, when you check out. You owe it to yourself to invest in the single most lethal weapon that you take to the elk woods each fall. Invest in you. Sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course and elevate your elk hunting success today. So, obviously, tracks and trails that are freshly ground into the hillside, you know, that's, that's one thing to look for. Um, rubs in the rut. So, difference between a fresh rub and an old rub is just, you know, you look at the bark. How crispy is it? What's it been like? What's the, what's the climate or what's the temperature been like? Has it rained a whole bunch? And it's, sometimes it's hard to read what a rub is when it's, everything's all wet. But if it's been dry for the past two weeks, which a lot of our Septembers are anymore, yeah. they're super dry, super warm, and you walk up on a rub and the, the, the needles are green. Um, some of them are freshly just trotted on the ground and smashed into the dirt. Yep. The, the bark is moist and still flexible. Yep. It's like that's a fresh rub. Yeah. If it's, cr- if it's crunchy the, and the uh, pitch is a little dried on it and set, you know, little bubbles or little uh, drops of sap built up on it, it's like, yeah, that might be a couple weeks old. Yep. So I, I, I kind of key into that. Look at wallows, how much mud is splashed out of them. Where's the mud splashed? Has it rained since? Yep. When's when's the last rain? Because the rain will wash that stuff off the grass. It's like, oh, yeah. Or is the water, I mean, it takes a while for water to clear up, you know, if it's real cloudy. Right. Um, But you can kind of tell if it's not cloudy. Something probably hasn't been in it for a little while. Um, Obviously, is looking at, you know, fresh, fresh droppings. If it's moist or green, slimy, that can definitely be an indicator of sign, but... What yeah. about difference uh, difference between a bull and cow scat? Do you notice any um, much difference? I guess when I see it, I know it. Yeah, but, you know, it's hard to say. It is if it's combined. If there's a big set of tracks, it's all the toes are all rounded. Yeah, off, you'll know. You'll know it. You'll know. Um, and one of the big things that I key in on, and I've killed elk by n- not hearing them but smelling them. Yeah, like, I'm glad you I, said that. You, after a while, you can differentiate the difference between what elk sign on the ground smells like versus what a real live animal that's 100 yards away standing there silent. The, they smell completely different. Yeah, there is a stench from when a bull is kind of just pretty ruddy and kind of probably doing stuff all over himself versus, you know, a bed where he just laid down yeah. and slept during the day and he peed in his bed. There's a, there's a significant yep. difference and once you know or experience, because you can't smell on a podcast, right. you will, you should be ready. It's game on. Mm-hmm. That's such, that's I've so called, important. I've called a couple bulls in silent. I, by, I've smelled them. I'm like, there's a bull right here. And I'll set up, make a few cow calls, and then a minute, two minutes later, you hear a, sni- a stick snap. And I'm like, well, did I imagine that? And then you see a little piece of hide coming down. It's like, that's a bull coming but totally silent. The only reason I ever killed some of those bulls are because I could smell them. And so I'll pay attention add to, to that, that is that I've had a couple of bulls that I've found that I've killed. Oh. I shot them, and maybe the blood trail kind of came dry. And I'm trying. There's a bunch of tracks, cows, calves, and I can't find where he went. I've had my 
you know, my sense of smell helped me find where I thought that bull went and recover him. I know that sounds, well, you get it. Yeah, I mean, for sure. they're, they're stinky critters. Yeah, you can definitely smell it. When you're close to them, they, yeah. you know it. That's good for reading signs. So some of the other stuff these guys are asking, and this topic to me is not that sexy just because I'm just not very good at it, but e-scouting. I had a lot of questions about e-scouting, and here's my take. Uh, I can go on Google Earth and kind of plan some logistics, but every time I get there, it just looks different in real life than it does on Google Earth. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of been like I've kind of put less stock on far as like really combing the country, but I do fly over and do get, you know, some ideas together for my plan. Do you use e-scouting to your advantage, and if so, what are you doing? I do use it. Um... I don't rely on it exclusively when I'm, well, let's say I'm checking out a new area. Yeah. I use it just to see what, what it kind of looks like overall. Like how much dark timber is there? How much of it's burnt? What are the, the, the drainages, the bottom drainage bottoms? What do they look like? What are the roads? What do they look like? Are they, you know, way up on the rim? I mean, you just kind of get an idea. If I'm on this road, will I be able to glass over in that drainage? How far out on that ridge is that bald knob where I can see stuff? So yep. it just gives you a feel for what it looks like, but it doesn't. It does not um, supplant or, I guess, take the the place of boots on the ground. Hundred um, percent. I. What about topo maps? Yeah, I use them. I, I I think all the time. These newer generation guys need to like chill out on the Google Earth and go back a little bit. Yeah. On the topo program. Oh, it it. It gives you a lot of information. I pull in. Uh, so I had a special permit in uh, southern Utah last year for elk, a late season bull tag. And I'd never set foot in the unit. I e-scouted it a whole bunch. but I, And I had some some help with some glassing points, you know. A uh, good friend of mine dropped me a bunch of great places. He kind of grew up in the oh, like, right helps. next to the unit. And uh, he's like, here's some spots you know to glass from go check it out but i all i pulled in all those um topo maps and i use a venza on a tablet or my phone how do you uh, spell that um a v e n z a i'll drop a link on this cast for people to yeah, check it out is it free um, or do you got to pay to play you it's it's both cool yeah there's a pro version and there's just a basic free version okay and you can get these geo reference pdf topo maps mm-hmm. uh and i use it i use it at work a lot um but i also use it in my my daily life for playing and it's um it basically it just geo references you on a topo map i love it it's great um and so i i brought all those in onto a tablet and i left that in my truck because i was just kind of cruising around just getting the feel for what the landscape looked like and i could tell where i was on the topo, and then I also put them on my phone for to replace the GPS. But having topos, just it gives you a better idea of slopes and distances, and just how how long it's going to take you to cover some of that ground based upon you know vegetation and trail access and all that. But you know how a lot of guys will hunt together, and then they get, they kind of get back at camp at night, and they kind of compare notes and tell stories and kind of debate. And make a plan for the next day. Mm-hmm. My hunting buddies are a topo map. I make it back to <laughs> yeah. camp, and I have a conversation with my maps, and I debate and go over the plan for the next day until I literally fall asleep. And I, I'm not kidding. I've done it so many times I can just laugh about because that's just what I do. And topo maps are everything. Love it. And I bet 
when you had your topos out and you knew your glassing points of that southern Utah unit, I bet you knew kind of where the elk were going to be before you even threw binos up just off your topo. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I looked at some features on the ground. And so in southern Utah, I was looking. It was a a late rifle, so I was down there in mid-November. So I'm looking for uh, shaded bedding areas for daytime stuff, but I was looking for the big open south, southwest-facing slopes where they'd be out feeding in the mornings and evenings. And so I was basically just like, okay, I need to be on this knob so I can look over in that canyon and I can see all that. So it just kind of lays out all the little, and you see more, I guess, let me back up. You can see more intricate details on a topo map than you can Google Earth. You can see those little tiny creases that might have a spring in it, or it might have a game trail coming down. And there's just more detail to it, I think. That's awesome. So one of the questions, or I guess one of the things I advertise at the camp that I feel like I kind of let the guys down is we just didn't have enough time to go over Onyx Hunt. Mm. I would say half had it already, and Onyx was really generous and gave everybody a one-year subscription. Oh, wow. That's right? awesome. Which was really cool for these guys, but I didn't get a chance to kind of go over how I use Onyx. And I don't know if I do it the way other people do, but I am a junkie on running tracking. I put it on all day long, and I save them. Because I'm generally on elk trails, mm-hmm. and I move the way the elk do, something I didn't do when I first started. Dude, I sucked at navigating. <laughs> I went up and down. I didn't understand that elk never go up and down. They're, they're smart, right. you know. Yeah, they're efficient. They're very efficient. So I just leave it on. I follow the elk. I chase bugles. And if I leave it on for a certain amount of days in a certain area, you hit save. All of a sudden, you have roadmaps on your on your phone of where the elk travel yeah and you don't waste energy you're very efficient and we talked about at the camp as far as like somebody asked a question like do you go back to the same place year after year or do you like to go new places and my answer was both i have my same haunts that i'm gonna hit i know when i'm gonna hit them but i bank time every year for new places and then i just leave that on x tracking on and that area becomes efficient. So if you can get real efficient with areas. Now, how many areas in your, we'll say your core area, do you feel like you can get in and get out and just kind of find where the elk at? Because finding elk is half the battle for noobs. How many areas do you have up here and wherever you hunt that you can get in and get out? I've got, uh, I've got probably four main areas that I I hunt regularly. Yep. And, and by that, I mean it's an area I can go in and spend five days there and bivy hunt kind of bivy hunt it um maybe longer if needed but i try to like not go much more than that if i'm doing like a backpack hunt close to my house i try to you know go out for maybe five days yep um it just it keeps me mentally more refreshed and i just you don't have to pack as much weight overall when you're bivy hunting it's pretty efficient yeah you can you can go pretty lightweight that way especially in september if the weather looks good and these are areas that you Um, you kind of know where to where to camp yeah now you are bivying so you could technically drop yeah. wherever you wanted but you probably know the best place to camp oh, yeah the best place to call from and where to intercept now where elk f- have a million bedding places where but to find water yes your access points to not bugger the elk where mm. they're at certain times of the day just the most efficient routes to the top of a ridge to look on the next basin over yeah you just by hunting an area several different years in a row several years in a row you kind of get an idea but um, by turning on your tracking, that's a great idea. I don't do that at all, but I think I probably will start. Yeah, I always get the iPhones with the ridiculous amount of memory, 
and I just I don't ever want that to get in the way. Yeah. And I haven't been doing it that long, but when I look back, hindsight, it really starts to paint a picture of how they move. Um, and I have, like you said, probably four, about four really good areas. Some of them I don't, like I try to stay out until I absolutely have to. Right. Because I'm trying to find new areas. I'm always trying to find new areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's always a tipping point, like in Idaho, especially where I'm just kind of be like, that's it. I've had enough. I'm going to that spot and I'm probably going to go kill an elk. Right. Um, but I'm always trying to kind of expand. And I think I told the guys at camp, I've gone from probably three to five square miles upwards to 30 over 20 years. And it just takes time. But let's talk about going to new places because I'm quite confident in your ability to find elk wherever you are at because you just, you know, their behavior. These guys don't. What can you say to somebody coming out from the east or the Midwest? They're intimidated as hell, mm-hmm. but they hear this podcast. We're trying to help their learning curve. What are they looking for when it comes to elk country? Well, you know, I guess it comes down to the three basic things. They need security. They need food and water and a place just to kind of get away from everything. I, I guess that's security, but... Food, water, security, yeah. basically. Yeah. Those are your three things. Yeah. Um, in a new area that's a general unit, security to me means getting away from the end of a road where a trailhead takes off um, or a main access point behind a ranch. That's, uh, I mean, the elk are going to be down on the ranch a lot of the time. They're not going to be on the forest after the first week of bow season. So you just kind of have to get away from the normal spots that people think they are going to go, or, the, you yeah. know, where most people go hunt. Yeah. So it's just thinking a little outside of the box, but you got to look for, is there ample water and is there feed and cover for them? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you can kind of figure that out on Google Earth a little bit, but... You know, if you're going to come out here from somewhere Midwest or back east, I recommend coming out a couple days in advance and, and just figuring stuff out without the intent of hunting. Yeah, you can still hunt and scout a little bit, but I would say spend three or four days of just covering ground and figuring stuff out yep. before you hunker down and get set on a specific plan. Mm-hmm. If you have a plan figured out in your head, Based on maps and Google Earth, it's, you're, you might be disappointed. <laughs> Probably you will be. Yeah. There's I a like good that. chance of it. So what I would if you're say, hunting with a group of guys, don't you think they should all just kind of go a different direction? Divide and conquer. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Split up and come back to a main base camp and compare notes and then, you know, head after the elk that you found. What do you think your most successful tactic has been historically on killing elk? Um, tactic is in like just. The are main you calling? Are you sneaking oh, in? I'm are calling. you? You're calling. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about calling then. Yeah. Um, would you classify yourself as like someone who could compete at a elk calling competition? <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Exactly. No. 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 My I would say my calling skills are average, um, and I do a mixture of bugling and cow calling. It just depends on the situation. Um, I've called in some big bulls just screaming with a cow call but i've done the same thing with a bugle yep so it just kind of like i guess i i've learned over the years to kind of figure out 
what they're thinking or kind of what they're, the language they're trying to tell me, you know, their behavior or their mood based upon their reaction. And I just run with what they're, they're telling me. Yep. So if I get them to bite with a cow call and they just scream and they're frustrated and I'll stick to it. Yeah. I won't throw a bugle in there, but sometimes bugling is where it's at and For sure. that's what's going to work. So when you, let's say it's in the morning, it's go time starting to get daylight you know better not to call in the dark because mm-hmm. you may call them right to you in the dark there's a pro tip let's say you're, you're setting up your first sequence what's the first thing to come out i'll just rip a locator bugle okay for sure i'll do that a few times um if i don't get a response i might throw a long a long drawn out cow call yeah just on on the back of that just to see um, but definitely hang out there for a little bit. Sure. Some guys just rip a bugle, don't hear anything, and they just keep marching. I've seen a lot of guys. I took some newbies last year. They rip out a bugle. They get an answer, and that's it. Boom. They go. And I had an old-timer teach me a long time ago, check the temperature. You know what I mean? Like, cool, you got an answer. He's just saying hello back. Right. Who else is out there? And I try to up my odds by kind of finding the right, who's in the right mood to play. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So how do you decide that? Man, it's just, I, yeah, I guess it just takes a little bit of time. You just got to hang out there for a second or two or a few minutes. And just, if I mean, if you rip another one and you don't hear anything, you can kind of tell when you get a response, too. Sometimes it's like a knee-jerk reaction yeah. from a bull. It's like, oh, he, I'm going to bugle because I just heard a bugle. And then they might not pipe up again yep. till like evening sometimes yep. sometimes it, they'll just like like a shock gobble on a turkey that's what it's i was like thinking a, it's like a knee-jerk response yeah um and if you get a knee-jerk response and you just start taking off you might have just wasted a bunch of energy and dropped down into this valley that's has one bull that's not going to answer you yeah when you could have been back on the ridge hiking up bugling into another basin or off another finger ridge or something like that where there was a hot bull so just kind of, I'd say just kind of like temper your response and just think about your actions. But but when you do decide to go do something, be decisive and act on it. Just, oh, you know, just do it. You that's know? great. You know, I feel like that's probably, I might be the best thing I've heard you say yet for somebody new. Don't be wishy-washy. Right. That's why I hunt by myself. Is I, I've hunted with people and we got wishy-washy and I started having more success when I hunted solo because there was no... There was no hesitation. Right. And those quick decisions, albeit I made mistakes, really started paying off. And I think that's, dude, that's so critical. Now, on, let's say you, you open up, you get that bull to answer or whatever. Are you a guy that likes to pressure, put the pressure on immediately? Are you trying to wait till they bed? Are you trying to get them in transition? What's your de- best play? It depends. It depends on the time of the day and what I think the wind's going to do. So it's all dictated on if it's early in the morning and I know the thermals are going to be solid for a couple hours yeah. and pulling down slope before the sun comes up, I will pressure hard, get on their heels and um, get try to get in their face. But if I know the wind's about to switch yeah. and you just don't, you know, they're down in the bottom and it's still pulling down, but where you're at is pulling up and things are starting to move, I'll hang back and wait. But um, sometimes those bulls will just take off, and they'll bugle, 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 and then they'll zip it right before they go to bed. And I'll just hang back and wait till midday, and they'll sneak in to where I think they're bedded, try to get a response. With? Uh, usually I will cow call. Yeah. And if I can get a, a response off the cow call, I'll just stick with it. But if I don't get a response, I'll bugle. A lot of times I'll get a response with that, and I'll stick with that. But and I've then killed. you'll move in to kind of threaten them. 
Yep. Yeah. But yeah. I've killed probably more of my bigger bulls that way, midday. Midday madness, midday, as they say. Yep, out of their beds. Yeah. Especially during kind of that mid to late September. Yep. You know, they've got some cows. They bred a bunch, but they still are they're actively wanting to breed more. And if they can find one, or if there's a bull that's pressuring their, their little harem of, you know, five that they have where, we're, where I'm at, um, he'll be aggressive back towards that other bull. Man, so. that's interesting. You know, I've almost had more luck calling first half, and then when they kind of get locked up, I've really had to flip my script to less. I've had less success in the midday, and I've had to really start, like, getting aggressive on sneaking in mm-hmm. in the mornings and using fitness to catch and intercept elk as they're just – I'm relying on satellite bulls mm. to bug the herd bull as he's pushing his cows. To keep or, him vocal. Yeah, or yeah. a herd bull who just likes to keep bugling as he pushes his cows. And then once you start to learn the lay of the land, if, say, you're in familiar country, you kind of get an idea where they're going and beat them to it. That's works real well. But in the evenings, uh, I want to talk to this topic that doesn't get talked enough. Same time of year, not having a lot of luck. Um, bulls aren't really aggressive. They have their cows. They don't want to play. They want to keep their greedy lovers mm-hmm. is what I call them. <laughs> I kind of have a lot of success at, in the evening, like hunting to almost the last legal light. Because then the wind gets really predictable. Uh, the cows are kind of stir-crazy, and they're yep. ready to get moving. And the bull starts maybe bugling a little bit. I feel like I can really sneak in. And I've learned that most hunters are already hiking back to their truck or whatever. For whatever reason, whether these guys want to admit or not, they're afraid of the dark. Or they don't, they're not comfortable hiking out in the dark. Right. And that's been a huge advantage for me is really w- getting a good wind in the evening and going to last light. Does it work out? Usually not, but when it does, it's pretty sweet, and I'm kind of accustomed to hiking out in the dark. You know what I mean? Right. And, do you do that? Um, I do. Yeah. And if you're bivy hunting, you're sometimes your hike's not that far. Yeah. So, you know, you just got to back off a ways to where you're out of the way of the elk when they do get up and move, and you can just throw your bag out and make sure that your wind's going to be good throughout yeah. the evening or throughout the night so it doesn't blow down to where the elk are going to feed. Um and then you maybe you should have water with you, hopefully. Um, so yeah, you, uh, if you're bivy hunting, you can back out. You can kind of be ready there in the morning and be on them. So you don't have to hike as far if you do have like a spike camp set up somewhere further out on a ridge. Yep. Or, but sometimes that's the only option too. You know, setting up a spike camp and hunting out of that, which is fine. Um, but yeah, you, like you said, you just got to be comfortable navigating in the dark, hunting in the dark, or like hiking out in the dark, and. Um, not injuring yourself if you get into a, a bad bad spot, like blow down or brush patch. I gotcha. All right, well, let's end with some what would Josh Boyd do? <laughs> Evening, you just went after the herd. They got up. It didn't work out. You're bivy hunting, backpack hunting. It's dark. You pull out. You're going to cook your dinner. You're kind of up high. Let's say you're up high. Water's down low, and it's evening now. Do you... Go get water that night, or do you tell yourself, oh, I'll get refueled tomorrow. I'll come across some water. Right, what kind of guy are you when it comes to water? Because water is pretty important it's when you're baby hunting. It really is. And a lot of times I've noticed that I've had to sacrifice sleep because I personally don't like getting water in the morning. I like to kill elk in the morning. So what would you do? I would get water when you can. 
I would definitely get it before morning, especially yeah. if I'm out. If I'm so the situation, I'm out of water. Yep. There's bulls right or elk right here. I'm right next to them. I want to camp next to them, and I'm out of water. Ugh. Sometimes I might just tough it out and just roll the dice. Yeah. And think, well, maybe they they were down in that bottom the night before. I'll be down there with them in the morning, and I can grab water then, or I could hike down there and get fueled up right now. It's kind of a roll of the dice. Sometimes I'll 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 go with it and see what happens, but usually I'll try to go with the safe bet, which is get water. You need it. Hopefully, I'm never in that situation because, you know, you just make make the opportunity or stop. No matter where I'm at, I'll stop and I'll fill up and top off my water when I come to a water source when I'm bivy hunting because you just do not know where you're going to end up. There's been a few times where I've been like. Oh, yeah, we're going to traverse through this basin. I There's got to be water over there. We don't need to get water right now, and we'll get over to that spot. And, like, no, oh, that's the worst. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> don't have any water here. Now we've got to drop 1,000 feet or 1,500 feet to get water. But when we could have had it before we started hiking. Yeah. But um, so, you know, anymore, if I come across a water source, even if I'm after actively after a bull, I will stop. And it only takes, you know, two or three minutes you know, if they're not pressured, you've got time to catch back up to them. Top off and go. I carry a filter. It just plugs right into the, my drink tube, and it's an active pump, but I just pump, pump, pump. And I don't even take my bladder out of my pack. Oh, that's legit. How long does it take to pump? Like a minute. Oh, so that's legit. Yeah, it's super fast. What is it? It's an MSR, one of yeah. those little micro lights, I yeah. think. It's yeah. like a bicycle to, or oh, a bicycle that's... pump style. The thing, I mean, it does plug. you got to back flush it fairly regularly, but it pumps fast yeah it does. so you just plug i mean i can just plug my drink hose right into the uh, the outflow and just pump 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 and i'm off that's cool um so it doesn't take long at all so i can get right back on the heels of those bull or those elk and that's so cool yeah yeah so. all right well let's uh want to fire rapid fire questions at you because i i hate to keep these over an hour but i have so many questions for you man are you good on time <laughs> i'm fine yeah. okay cool so lots of time what uh what's your arrow weight for elk with oh. broadhead, with wraps, yeah. veins, knocks. Yeah, good question. What's the sweet spot for you? Um, you know, lately I've been running stuff like in that 410 to 430 grains. I have a short draw length. What is it? 27. It's mine. It's, yeah. That's not short. Yeah. Well. Brian Barney's short. His is 26 and a half. <laughs> I heard him say that, and I was like, yeah. Yeah, so, that is pretty short. Yeah, Brian, you're short. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I try to keep my, I mean, I've shot elk with as light an arrow as a 350. Really? Um, That's zip total right setup? Yeah. Wow. Full setup. But, I, you know, I've been shooting uh, Easton Injections yep. last few years. Um, plus, I've been shooting those um, Victory VAPs, mm-hmm. the little skinnies. Yeah. Um, with an outsert. I was using fire knocks on those VAPs. Yep. With a 100-grain striker. Yeah. I love the striker. Cool. Um, the... Eastern injections I was shooting last year had, I was using those titanium half outserts that they yep. came out with, so you can use a regular threaded broadhead. Yeah. Um, four fletch with the little. Uh, That's got some front and center right there, man. It does. Holy smokes. Yeah. And I shot a bull last year. I mean, it just, it didn't shoot through them, but it shot. Well, actually, the last two bulls I shot were a lot of penetration. The, That's good. The, no, wait. Yeah. Last three bulls. Just 
Yeah. Those VAPs I shot lengthwise through a bowl, basically. Yep. I shot him frontal. Did you? The arrow was bedded, uh, stuck in his femur on the offside. Uh, where, so he probably died within five seconds? I mean, how far did uh, he go? He went 40 yards, 40 down, yards. down the hill. Yeah. Just blood everywhere. How many uh, frontals do you think you've taken? A lot. Yeah. Because you are hunting solo and calling and in brush country. That's My average shot distance on elk on the last probably five or six bulls has been eight yards. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it's yeah. sweet. So those little skinny arrows get great penetration. Um, they're tough. A lot of your frontals just on country that's flat, or is it usually steep and you're shooting up or down? Generally, it's a little more gentle. A little more gentle? Yeah. Okay. You know, if it's a severe angle, I won't take it. Yep. So it's You kind of need a flat shot on that frontal. You kind of do, yeah. You got to see where that arrow's going to go through mm-hmm. okay i did shoot one downhill one time that was i shot him kind of right along the side of his neck it, between his neck and his shoulder blade yeah but he like he put his head down to sniff and he turned it sideways it kind of exposing that oh yeah that bigger opening of his upper rib cage and like i mean it that arrow just disappeared yep. you know past the knock as well the bull uh i think uh the th- I'm trying to think the bull I killed three bulls last year, so the third one was a frontal, which I've I've kind of mixed reviews on frontals. You know, I think it's a personal decision. Right. I do shoot eighty pound limbs, which is probably overkill, and I shoot four hundred and eighty grain arrow. Fixed broadhead, of course. So anyways, he was kind of coming up to me and I had pressured him what I call turn the tables, which is my least favorite tactic, but it's just where he's got cows, he doesn't want to play ball, and he's we're just bugling back and forth and he's trying to leave and Mm -hmm. I am not letting him leave. And we went all the way up the mountain and finally he hit that magical bench where the cows got tired, their tongues are hanging out and Uh he had to stand his ground and I was there and he turned and he's glunking his way to me, which surprised me. I don't know why he was, I thought they glunked when they're excited, but apparently he's glunking to come fight because I had challenged right after over the top of his last bugle. Here he comes and he stops about six yards so it was a pretty close shot, yep. but it was slightly downhill, mm-hmm. just like you described. And I got only maybe three-fourths of the arrow in. Oh, okay. And that's all the penetration I got that close must of a shot. smacked a bone or something. I, I must have, but he died, I don't know, less than 10 yards. I'm about 10 yards. It was just <laughs> over in an instant. Um, Frontals are deadly. I, that, that's the least an animal is going to travel, at least an elk. It have all been my frontal shots. Agreed. Also... What is uh, the deal with quartering two shots? Have you had many of those? A little bit. I hate them. If it's super, super uh, sharp to me, yeah. I treat them like a frontal. Yep. Don't I don't ever try to shoot one behind the shoulder. Yeah. Because all you're going to do is maybe nick your close lung and you're get liver and paunch, you know, as your arrow penetrates. Um, I've seen it done, and it's not a good deal. Yep. Um, so just a slightly quarter two is doable yep, for behind the shoulder. Yep. But there's that there's a there's a no go angle in there. It's like a frontal's not going to work and behind the shoulder's not going to work. So just wait. Yeah. You, you know, sometimes you got to let that bull walk. But that's just the name of the game when boat when you're bow hunting. When did you start to understand that patience in the red zone? Here's what I mean by this because this is what I experienced when I first started getting bulls to come in. I was pretty jacked about it. But I was in such a panicked rush to get a shot off. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I just never it, – it probably took me several elk killed. And when I started passing bulls to learn, holy smokes, there was another 90 seconds you had 
and another 10, 15 yards closer. When did you start learning that patience? And people aren't going to know what we're talking about, so try to help yeah. explain that. Um, I guess I started kind of figuring it out when, I don't know, about after you get a few bulls under your belt, it seems like, you just you start thinking, I guess sometimes you, you just don't get a shot until they get right on top of you. And once that happens a few times, it's like you just realize, well, this bull does not know you're here. They're they're fairly calm, and you just got to let them come. And, you know, in the brush country that we hunt, you don't have another You don't really have an option but to let them come. Yeah, yeah you might see, you know, his eyeballs and his antlers <laughs> staring, <laughs> looking for you over the brush. Yeah. But you don't have a shot, so you just have to be patient. And yeah, I guess that that has developed my nerves a little bit. Is just like, oh, you can see them. That's they're, a good way to describe it. They're thirty yards, but you just gotta just. And I tell myself, I get excited all the time. Oh, I've for sure. A bunch of elk with but my your bow, nerves but have like, had reps. Yeah, that's I, a good way to put I, it. My brain tell. I just have to tell my brain, or my brain tells itself, like, just take a deep breath, relax. This is all gonna work out. This is gonna be perfect. And he's going to come here or there, and I have, I have options. Yeah. And so, and I think this is what I do in the off season. It might sound really weird oh, to I'm some people, to but I used to do a lot of like downhill mountain bike racing, and so like you'd go practice, practice, practice on these these really gnarly, crazy downhill runs, and then when your race time came, you know, you had a light and a buzzer that goes off, and you're racing the clock. But I would sit at the top, and I would just I would just close my eyes, and I'd visualize the run, and visualize myself riding the trail. Perfect. I wouldn't visualize it, so I was screwing up. I wouldn't visualize where I was crashing or I was having problems. I'd visualize those problem sections just working out perfect, and that helped a ton. Hmm. So I started doing that with elk. I started thinking, I started just visualizing scenarios of elk coming in. And it working out perfectly. It's like uh, if I'm out walking through the woods scouting, I just stop every once in a while, and I'm just like, okay, what if I call the bull in here? And I just visualize how a bull uh, yeah. might work through here. I'm like, oh, I'd draw here, and then he would pop out there, and then oh yeah, he'd be 30 yards or 25, and then you know, and I just visualize it all working out. So that kind of gets me your brain going through this rep of making shots at elk and it it increases your blood pressure a little bit your heart rate goes up when you're doing it right yeah and it to me it helps a lot yeah. to when it actually is happening it's like you visualize it a ton in your head and here it is happening it might not be exactly the same that way you visualized it but it helps calm my brain a little bit and the cool thing about what you're saying is unlimited reps there's no limit to how many right. you can visualize and paint that scenario because it's going to be autonomic, right. automatic, yep, nervous system, all that stuff. In fact, you may shoot the elk and be like, I don't remember the last 15 seconds. I don't even know what happened. You didn't black out. You just your autonomic service. It's all, right. you know, um, fight or flight a little bit. So speaking of a high heart rate, have you ever um, messed with shooting your bow under duress, like mm-hmm. on purpose, like run, hike up a hill, shoot, yep. or whatever? Believe it or not, I co-founded Train to Hunt in 2011 walked away from it two years later and then i've even written programs and told people what to do and how to do it but i haven't done it myself that much i'll do it on the 3d course i'll do it with hiking but i've never really gone into my gym and just done stuff with a heart rate monitor and i finally did it just this week i messed with a heart rate monitor just to kind of see what's up first thing i'll tell you is that um 
it's just like shooting an elk as far as the I could feel my heart pounding in my chest. Now, the whole breathing thing, I'm usually not out of breath. I was out of breath, so that was a little tricky to navigate. But the heart beating, because I could be just sitting there, but my heart rate could be 160, 170 because yeah. the bull's coming. Yep. So I did all this physical stuff and shot, physical stuff, shot, physical stuff, shot. And I would say the heartbeat is definitely duplicable. I, you're duplicating that. I was at, I'm 37, so my max heart rate projected. I don't remember how to do all that, but it's probably like 180, 185 is about the highest my heart rate could go. I got it to 170 something. Wow. <laughs> and it sucked. Um, and sh- shooting, it took a couple of breaths, and I was able to get my heart rate down. But the cool thing about when you're doing physical activity is like say you were doing hiking really fast uphill and you stop the moment you stop your heart rate actually should probably go up a little bit more and that could happen to you while you're elk hunting so you just you're hiking after this bull you stop here he comes your heart rate's going to go up naturally and then you're excited you probably got to practice this shooting under duress and i would tell you like i wasn't super proud of my shot my group um they're all kills or whatever but I just, I think I'm going to start doing that more intentionally on Mondays, as long as I'm not doing anything stupid like punching triggers and creating bad habits. Right. You know what I mean? But what have you done with that? Um, I've just been like, so I'll go like, I'm kind of like you. I was kind of curious how I would function, you know, after some, a long physical activity. So uh, in the springtime, I, before the trails open up, I'll, I'll go road riding with, on a road bike and I'll do like a really long like two or three hour road ride or something and i'll come back and you know you're just drained everything's just gone and just throw the bike you know in the garage and then run down grab the bow walk out to the to the range and just see how you feel after you've been you know that's assaulted your body for three hours um and i guarantee you that my effective range is not what it is when i'm just out there in my flip-flops on a Sunday morning, mm-hmm. you know, plunking, plunking the bag. Yeah, that's so, true. But it's good. It's good to be aware of that, you know, and know, sure. know how your body reacts. And I think you can train yourself to become better. You oh, know? yeah. Try to control control some of the, your movements a little differently and control your breathing and just know that, you know, your heart yeah. rate. I mean, you, and you can lower your, your heart rate somewhat through some, some training. I agree. Mm-hmm. And I think just being really fit helps, too, like – I know for certain those 20 guys that came to my camp, I bet most of them wouldn't be able to get their heart rate down to where mine was with just a few, a few extra breaths of air. And that's not me trying to impress people. It's more like I'm impressed upon you. Like your conditioning matters. Right. And it will affect. Ultimately, we're working for that one shot opportunity. And it always comes down to not technology or how badass you are. It's the shot right. of the bow or the whatever. But and sometimes that's your only one. You know, yeah. sometimes you get one opportunity uh-huh. and then that is it. You know, I, I try to spend about 20 days archery hunting elk and sometimes I'll get one. Yeah. And you work your ass off for that shot. Yeah. Yeah. And when you blow it, it's like, oh no. You can cry yourself. What am I going to do now? All that was, year. That took, that took 15 days for me to get that opportunity. Mm, yeah. Hopefully you have more than that. But So I'm doing this new thing with my training buddies. We're going to every Monday... We're going to do shooting under duress. Cool. Nothing crazy. Uh, I did this last one after a literally a grueling 90-minute workout session. I was already fatigued. Uh, it was really good for me. And I like what you said about that long road bike ride. You depleted all your glycogen. You're fatigued. You're covered in sweat. You're, that's really transferable, I think, like to what it's going to be like when you're hunting after elk. 
it's a very physical endeavor. At least it is my experience. Right, right? yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's finish with maybe giving some suggestions on where to go. Here's the last question that I get the most. What would Josh Boyd do? Um, Over-the-counter, Idaho, Colorado, or, quote, over-the-counter, well, general tag, Montana. People ask me all the time, which would I pick? Um, I know what I've told them. What would you tell them? Um, well, I've never hunted um, Colorado. So I'll preface it with that. So they should go there. Yeah, I hear that <laughs> they have the highest elk population in the West. 280,000 so, or something crazy? Yeah, yep, go for it. I don't think there's many hunters there either. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, the, seriously, I either one can be good. Um, there's trade-offs to both. Um, you know, Idaho has little shorter seasons, um, but you have to pick a zone kind of a deal um but they you know i i believe idaho manages their elk in a pretty decent way um the places i've hunted i've you know i've hunted up here in the panhandle but i've also hunted south idaho southern idaho and man there's a lot of elk in a lot of places of idaho montana it manages it differently um you can go to other areas in the state um you know southwest or central south central and see a ton of elk as well but there seems like there's more um private land harboring in some of those places so yeah you might see a bunch of elk but they might not be accessible and we you know montana does have a longer archery season it's kind of a wash i mean uh, i i would i don't know i can't pick one yeah how about both uh, yeah, both I try are to good. hunt both. If Do I you? Can. Yeah. yeah, I need to start coming back to Montana. I just experienced a lot of what you just said with the the private land harboring. It just got so frustrating. I mean, yeah, it just I hate that. So I know there's lots of wild wild places in Montana, and it's close to me. So maybe I need to do some refiguring. But um, yeah, man, this has been a cool little environment. We're at yeah. a hipster coffee shop where I'm pretty sure nobody hunts, and uh, we're both wearing flannel though. <laughs> So That's right. That. We fit in. We fit in. <laughs> and uh, we're talking elk hunting, which is uh, obviously your passion, man. It is. I love it. Congrats on being a dad and getting Thanks. your priorities in check. Uh, where can people find you out in the world of interwebs? Um, well, you can find me on Rockslide. Um, just my username is Josh Boyd. So staff writer for those guys. And then um, the only social media I'm on is Instagram. So it's just Josh underscore Boyd underscore MT, I think. Cool. So, yeah, if you check me out there, you'll. I just try to keep hunting. I used to throw some work photos up there, but now it's just all kind of hunting drive. It's your so. hunting page or whatever. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. It's kind of fun yeah. um, throwing some images up there. Yeah, you take great photos, it's, man. It's, it's inspired. That has inspired me to kind of up my photography game a little bit. So, really? Yeah. That's I've, cool. en- I've enjoyed just checking out other people's stuff. And what do you shoot on? Um, I've got some Micro Four Thirds bodies that I use, so Panasonic and Olympus. Yeah, and I, cool. I do a bunch of video stuff for like it sort of pertains to my job, but I use my personal gear for it. So they take great, uh, great video. So yeah. Panasonic GH4 and GH5 are they're awesome video bodies. Yeah. So um, and they take okay images. Yeah. So dude, we'll have to share a campfire one of these days. That'd man. be awesome. I yeah. think uh, us short guys. <laughs> Those elk don't have a chance. I know. They don't. I'm telling people. I tell people all the time when you hunt brush country, being short does not suck. No, it's great. Yeah, you don't have to bend over to crawl underneath stuff. And just, yeah, you can mm-hmm. just cruise. Do you have any desire to hunt rosies? I do. Um, 
somewhat. Um, I'd kind of, I wouldn't mind going, um, but some of that reprod that they hunt's gnarly. Yeah. So I, I've hunted quite a few times with, with Brinker. Yeah. And he's from Oregon. Yeah. And he's hunted up here in the brush country with me, and he, and he's just like, man. How does he is, compare it? This is just like Oregon, but like. Instead of having a logging road right down there, there's nothing down there. Okay, cool. So yeah. yeah, it's and he's like he doesn't get too much further than a mile or two from a, any old road. Yeah, because yeah. it's it's all roaded over there. Yep. But brushy, and he's like, yeah, this stuff remind it reminds me That's just cool like Oregon. Yeah. So I I think uh, the brush hunters from the Pacific Northwest would do okay down there and yeah, in Oregon and in western washington but yeah i've always wanted to my wife did her thesis on roosevelt elk over on the olympic peninsula no kidding um and i would i kind of like wanted to pursue it back then but i just didn't it's like an over-the-counter tag for me coming out of washington oh yeah but okay i just can't seem to want to i don't like going anywhere near seattle no offense if you live in seattle I just <laughs> I like going the other direction. Um, so I hear you. Um, but yeah, man, I appreciate you driving yeah. over an hour. Yeah, to meet me. well, you drove up here as well. So yeah, it was man. Good, uh, good to chat. Good excuse with you. to hang out with you too, man. Yeah, it's awesome. All right, well, we'll catch you on another one. All right, sounds good, Dan. Cool.